I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 137. Today in the show, we are joined again by Donnie Vincent, and this time we're diving deep into his hunting and habitat improvement experiences on his own Wisconsin property. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, we're back again with a very recent guest, Donnie Vincent. And in our last episode with him back during the fall, we talked about a bunch of different things. But right towards the end of that conversation, we really briefly touched on the fact that Donnie had been doing some habitat work and hunting on a property of his own in Wisconsin. And after that episode went live, both Donnie and I got feedback from folks wanting to hear more about that side of what Donnie's doing. You know, you hear a lot about Donnie's big sheep hunts and, I don't know, moose hunts or bear hunts all over the place, but not often do you get to hear about what he's doing, you know, on a regular piece of property that he owns and manages, kind of like us. So today we wanted to specifically talk about, you know, how Donnie found this property, how he acquired this property what his habitat and deer management goals and plans have been, what has he specifically done, why he do it, um, all that kind of stuff. And also kind of catch up on some of his more recent hunts there too since last time we talked. So that's the plan for today. And then then also on top of that, I did want to follow up on something that we talked about again last time, and that was a book that Donnie had mentioned that he reads. I think he said he reads every year. And I've read it recently. Well, I read it several years ago, again recently, and that's A Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. And Leopold's someone that you've probably heard about when it comes to the history of hunting and conservation in this country. But if you haven't read the book, you might not know a lot about his ideas, or in particular his idea about a land ethic, which is something that's guided much of the conservation movement over the last, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years or so. So I'm hoping we can dive into this idea of a land ethic too, because I think Donnie is going to have some interesting insights to share on that front. And uh, this whole topic of a land ethic and conservation and wildlife and wild places, that's been on both of our minds a lot lately, hasn't it, Dan? That's a fact, man. You uh, you sent me a message today, and you said, hey, can we get on a little bit earlier today 
because I need to I need to vent about some of this kind of stuff. And I and I love it when I get those messages from you because <laughs> when you need to vent, I know it's usually about something that I want to vent about too. So <laughs> right, what's right. what what's on your mind? Well, it, and you know, this all kind of started. I mean, it it didn't really start, but it diesel was dumped on the flame, so to speak, at the ATA show when I realized, you know, when it I shouldn't say I realized, I felt that there was not enough emphasis on conservation or the animal or, you know, the, the keep it public movement um, yes. that we hunters should be really focusing on. And I don't just mean we, I mean every person in the industry, whether you sell a product or you make your money off of advertising dollars like uh, some of the hunting celebrities do or even, you know, guys like me and you. Yeah. Um, and I'm just as guilty of it. Uh, there needs to be more focus on it. And uh, if you are the, to the point where if you are in the industry, it should be mandatory because you are making your money off of uh, uh, a natural resource that is kind of being treated as like a, 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 um, I don't know, like a commodity almost. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that uh, commodity um, piece because there's there's some really interesting things that Leopold had to say about the difference between looking at land and wildlife and our natural resources as a commodity versus as something that we are part of a community with. Um, right. And I and and later when we're with Donnie, I want to actually read a couple things about that because I think he has some powerful things to say. But uh, but dude, you're so right. Um, and and it's funny. I was just thinking about this too and how you know whether it's the public lands issue specifically, um, well, A, I think what you're saying is 100% right in general when it comes to conservation or just taking care of the the land that we hunt or the environment, all these different things. But also when it comes to this kind of public lands thing specifically, I was sitting here and thinking, you know, okay, like I care about public lands because I have got to experience them a lot. I've gotten to hunt on them. I've gotten to fish on them. I've gotten to camp and hike and backpack and kayak and and, and, and see these places. Um, but some people maybe have not ever gotten to right. one of these places, you know? And I started wondering, you know, do, do these people care about it at all like I do? Like, do they hear me talking about this stuff all the time and just, like, roll their eyes and say, ugh, Mark again on one of his rants about public land? And I started thinking, like, should these people that only hunt private land that have never been to these place, some of these bigger western maybe public lands or maybe haven't hunted public land here in the east or the midwest or south, like should they care about it? this kind of thing and i'm actually yep. writing an article right now about it kind of laying out like f four or five reasons why I, I think they should um yes even from like a selfish standpoint being that you know uh, really quick not to like steal the thunder of the article that i still have to finish but yeah. um but like really quickly like okay think about this even if you only hunt private land out here what happens if all the public land around you or around the country, what if that public land is so mismanaged and degraded and developed that it can't support wildlife populations anymore and you can't hunt there? Or right. what if it just gets sold? So what happens if the millions of hunters that do utilize public lands all of a sudden can't? Well, they're going to start trying to hunt private land or they're going to try to find private land. So that means you know more competition for the, the pieces that you have permission on. There might be more people trying to lease properties. There might be more hunting on your property borders that are bugging you. You know, competition is like a thing already yep. for private hunters. It it's going to be a lot worse if there's no public access at all. So there's right. one simple reason, like just purely if you want to think about how it will impact you 
as as a private land hunter, there's one simple way. Or what about the fact that new hunters traditionally typically don't have a place to hunt? So a lot of new hunters are dependent on public lands because that's that's their easiest way to get out in the woods and, and try this hunting thing. Um, right. Well, if we don't have public lands or there's not public lands available to hunt easily, you know, we're not going to gain those new hunters as, as easily as we might have otherwise. And as we've talked about in the past, you know, if the numbers of hunters continue to decline, we will lose our influence in this democracy where, you know, votes equal privilege. Um, right. So I, I won't go down this road any further, but it's, it's been something I've been thinking about, too. And it's something that I think it does impact all of us. Right. I saw I saw a article or a comment on social media where and this it's it kind of goes back to the two percent for conservation uh organization how you know i i feel that as hunters we should demand that the companies who are making money off of hunting give back in some way shape or form therefore you know we can say all right i would love to see you support two percent for conservation you know and and because of that, then I will buy. I will continue to buy your product. You know what I mean? Um, I just feel that there's so much money out there that could be given to conservation efforts that's currently not. Yeah. What, whether that's commercial or individuals like ourselves. Right. And and I'll tell you what. I don't. I don't know if this is just because I'm kind of weird like this, but I think that that is some of the best marketing a company can do. Like I see mm-hmm. companies that do support conservation or, uh, you know, the environment or whatever it might be, whether it's 2% for conservation or 1% for the environment, or you just hear about some of the different things that companies are doing. When I know right. there's a company that prioritizes that um, consistently and I hear about that and I understand that that's something that matters to, to the people there, um, I'm way more likely to spend my money with them. Um, that's a fact. I mean, with, a fact. I can't remember if I've talked about it before, but, you know, so obviously we talk about it all the time. I wear Sitka gear for like all my hunting stuff, of course, and, and they're great supporters of this. But like for for my non-hunting um, stuff, like fishing gear and some of that type of stuff, I'm a big supporter of Patagonia because of how much they do on that front. Like if you look into the things they're doing to help a lot of causes related to public lands and wildlife and stuff like that, like they're doing some really cool stuff there too. Um, and that's like if I'm going to spend you know however many dollars it is on a pair of waders or something. I'd rather spend it with a company like that who's doing some good things with that money versus, you know, someone who's just like looking to make a dime. So right. I, I think it drives sales too. It can help companies and it's also the right thing to do. Right. Now I have a question about the Patagonia is and maybe I'm thinking of a completely different company. Um they're an out they're an outdoors company, but from a backpacking or camping standpoint. Um is Patagonia pro hunting? So Patagonia, as far as I understand, is now they're not like a hunting company at all. But I know exactly. that I know that Yvonne Chenard is the founder, and I know he hunts. Um, okay. And I know like upland hunting, and he I know he lives in Jackson, Wyoming, and eats a lot of elk and eats a lot of deer from some of his friends that are hunters and stuff. So from everything I've read and seen, um, they've been you know hunting neutral and pro public lands, pro environment, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, right. so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's the type of company that I'm, that I'm interested in supporting. Now, of course, you know, if I found out otherwise, you know, there's definitely some companies out there that are, you know, pro environment, but anti hunting. And right. those are the types of companies that I, I definitely, you know, would like to see change that stance. And right. there's, there's two, and this is, this is a whole nother thing we're getting into, but you know, there's, 
I don't know. I think there's a lot of ways that the non-hunting environmental movement and the hunting environmental or conservation movement, however you want to phrase it, I think there's a lot of things we have in common. So like one of my big things is I'm always trying to find ways, like how can we try to bridge that gap a little bit more? I know sometimes right. it's not always going to be possible. Like there's going to be crazies on that side that refuse to look at the world the, we, the way we do. Right. And so that's kind of a lost cause. But I think there are people that are willing to listen and willing to work with us if we don't like shut them out, if we don't like automatically assume, well, because you're a quote unquote tree hugger, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, right. When maybe 50% of those people actually are hey pretty okay with what we do when they find out what we do and how we do it. And hey, maybe we can work together. My, I, right. I'm just like advocating for let's, let's have an open mind and on both sides, asking for them to have an open mind, asking for us to have an open mind and like, let's work together because whether it's public lands or clean air or clean water or healthy wildlife populations, like all that stuff, we both want the same things. Right. Um, and, and I think if we hunters don't, you know, recognize that and don't like start caring about that a little bit more. Hey, we're not going to have uh, any deer to, to fill the freezer, put on the wall. And we're not going to have places to go have these incredible adventures. We're not, you know, our way of life just doesn't exist if those core elements aren't there. Right. And I think that's, that goes to an organizational level as well, where, you know, companies, I don't know, hunt some kind of hunting organization, let's say like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or National Deer Alliance partners with someone who they might never partner with, like the National Federation of Bird Watchers, you know, you know, something right. like that where where I don't even know if that's a real thing, first of all, but it, <laughs> it, it could be Sounds or, good. you know, the you know, people who are into kayaking or, you know, backpacking, you know, like just going out backpacking and coming back in really, we, sh like you said, we share way more in common than we have in differences. The only difference is we, we kill an animal and we eat it. Mm -hmm. That's real. That's really the only difference between myself and someone who goes out and backpacks. Yep. Yep. It's, it, it, we share the same, we share the same beliefs. We share the same interest. We, we share the same love for nature and the same, uh, you know, the, uh, the same, res you know, the respect for the, the public lands. Yeah, it's very true. It's, it's just sometimes people get bogged down in the one piece that is different right. and, and understandably right. that's a big thing. And some people can't get over that. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm just trying to say, Hey, there are some people who can, who can see through that and see the value of what we do. And let's, let's let, let's put a hand out to those folks at least. So, yeah. whoa, I got a question for you, Dan. Okay. When was it, and I don't know if you can think of a moment or an, an experience, but was there any moment for you when like you started to feel this way? Like for me, you know, for the longest time, you know, I hunted just because I hunted and I was outside all the time and I loved the outdoors and I loved fishing and I loved killing deer and eating deer and doing all these things and I was obsessed with it. Um, but then like at some point, like within the last like eight years, eight or nine years, it really lasts like five years, especially last like three years, really, really like something clicked for me. And I don't know if it was some of these experiences I've had, but something clicked for me where all of a sudden I went from just wanting to do that thing to like really wanting to make sure this thing is taken care of and available in the future. Right. Like, do, do you remember any kind of moment like that for you? Or is there an experience that kind of epitomizes that? So I don't even know. I'm going to say early nineties, mid nineties, 
probably early 90s, my dad took me and my brother from Iowa to Colorado on a um, on the Amtrak train. And we drove all, we rode on it all through the night, got in Denver, rented a car and went up into the mountains. We went to Rocky Mountain National Park. I don't remember all of it because uh, I was younger. And then we went um, to a couple other places, all public land, right? And, you know, just drove up in the mountains and it took my breath away. And I had already had a love for nature because I did a lot of fishing and trapping when I was younger. But just going out there and experiencing like the mountains and, and, and stuff like that was for me kind of a game changer. But as far as me realizing that it's time to actually start, you know, like take action and time to put in work and, you know, enough of this bullshit talk that everybody talks, but very few people follow through with action. Yeah. And it, it, it was just, I guess, ever since I went on that elk hunt with you in uh, Idaho, there was a fire that was lit in me where I want to live this life. Not not necessarily – I want I want to live it's, – it's hard to explain because it's more of a feeling than it is words, mm-hmm. right? I want my kids to have the same opportunity – to go out and experience, even if they're not hunters, but to go out and stand on a mountaintop and just look and not see any buildings, or if they want to disappear into the wilderness, they have the opportunity to do that. If they want to go, you know, to a public boat access or a public access waterway and someday go fish, you know, fly fishing or even fishing around Iowa, I want them to have the same opportunities that that I did because I feel that nature can really change your life. And like I said, it's hard to put into words because it's, it's a feeling just like, you know, I talked about how bow hunting kind of changed my life, how I jumped into bow hunting Mm -hmm. and it it kind of took me off of this weird, you know, this self-destructive path. I, I feel that nature has these, these healing powers, not just, not necessarily physically, but for the human spirit and like emotionally as well. Yeah. Without a doubt. And I got to believe anyone who has done this kind of thing long enough can relate to that. Like we've all had those moments where it revives you. It, Mm -hmm. it brings you back to life almost sometimes when no matter how bad the baddest stuff is in the rest of your life, you can go out and whether that's the back 40 behind your house or if that's a piece of public land and you're able to get away from it all like that has, like you said, a serious kind of healing power. Um, but I do think that sometimes it takes like some kind of experience or enough immersion in that to like begin to realize it. Like, I, I mean, you know, you, you can't expect someone to care about something or to take action on something until they've actually experienced it and felt that type of thing that you're talking about. Um, but to our point, most hunters have felt something like that. It's just a matter of like being thoughtful and mindful of that and realizing that and realizing, Hey, this isn't a guaranteed thing unless we take that action. But I mean, think about this, Dan, back when we were hunting elk in Idaho, right? We've got our, our two tents set up on that little knob and we've got the forest and the mountains rising up behind us. But then, Looking downhill, 
you've got this big valley and then that great big mountain and, and ridge lines yep. on the other side of the valley. And you and me, after a long day of hunting, it's dark out. We hiked all the way back to camp. We put our pulled our food down from the bear bags, grabbed our, our little portable backpacking stoves and a little pot and filled those up with water and sat on our butts right there on the edge of that knob. And our the water's boiling for our little freeze-dried meal. And the sun is set, but there's just a little bit, that little line of orange, you know, yep. on the horizon. But the stars are already coming out above you, and the, the the mountains in front of you now are just a silhouette, but a very clear black silhouette. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you remember that moment just sitting there, and it's perfectly quiet, and it's just, yeah. you sit there in a moment like that, and you see no lights, you see no civilization. It's just you and this wilderness, and I, I don't think you can sit there and have an experience like that and not, like, feel something. Right. Um, and feel like- I think, I think, though, in a way— um, you were there once, and although you did experience it, I think a majority of the people out there, for me, it's – I feel – I have this negative feeling towards my cubicle, and I I, I dislike it. You know, like I feel like I'm in a cage at times. I dislike it. Like don't get me wrong. I love the people I work with. It is a great job. I love doing my job. But sitting in my cubicle gives me kind of the opposite feeling of sitting on top of a mountain. You know what I mean? Or walking through the timber looking for sheds or whatever. But I feel that that negative energy can trigger positive energies without necessarily necessarily experiencing what you're talking about. So So I I feel that can be motivating to want change, even though you may not have experienced it up front in your face. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying by virtue of the fact that so much negative energy out of this current experience that yeah. you want to ensure that there is the potential for that positive out there, which, which right. there's, you know, there's something to be said about the fact that I can't remember. I think it was, well, I'll, you know, this guy this famous writer named Wallace Stegner um, was writing about the importance of wilderness and he wrote this thing called this this letter called the Wilderness Letter back in the sixties or seventies when the Wilderness Act was passed. And you should Google this and read the letter. It's 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 very it's very profound writing about the value of wilderness. And he said something on the lines of the fact that you know even if you're never ever going to step foot in a, in a wilderness area, you know, in one of these places where you know there aren't cars and parking lots and lots and people and buildings and businesses and all that stuff even if you're never going to go to one of those places there's an inherent value just knowing it's out there like when you're sitting in your cubicle miserable right. and worked down to the bone and you've got fluorescent lights staring down on you for 12 hours a day just the fact that you know that there is something still wild and free and available out there I think that has some power. And he said that, you know, that right. those those places, those last vestiges of like that hope out there, he called that the geography of hope. And um and that's kind of a pretty powerful thing. I think even if you aren't there right now or can't be there or never plan on being there, there's a value just to know that there's still places like that out there. Yep. And it motivates me. Yeah. Like it motivates me to do good on my podcast so I can someday maybe step away from my cubicle. It motivates me to save my money so I can take my family out there to show them what it's all about. I talk to my, I talk to my daughter, I'd say once a week 
And I always say, Ava, do you want to come to the mountains with daddy sometimes? Yeah, I want to come go to the mountains with you sometime. And I, I cannot wait for that day to take her to some, you know, drive, you know, drive up overlook of the giant valley somewhere. It doesn't matter what state it's in and just be like, look at all this we could explore if you wanted to. Yeah, we can do we can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah that's and that's going to be a pretty awesome moment. And, and then I'll say, though, too. Right, the the tiny at home wilderness quote unquote areas yep. are are just as important too. Whether that be exactly. you know the little county park or your hunting property. I mean, I think I think the things yep. we're talking about, like the valuing these places and trying to find a way to protect them or um, help conserve them in some way, like that can be applied to big western public lands, but it can also be yep. applied to your little farm too, and showing that yep. care and respect even here. Um, and I think that's kind of kind of where our conversation is going to go from here as we talk to Donnie. I really want to hear about how he is implementing these types of ideas on a little property here in Wisconsin, just like any one of us listening could probably do, um, because there's something special about that too. I think you got to kind of feel that even a little bit just planning a food plot this year. You know, It's right. kind of cool to, right. to, to, to give back in some little tiny way and see the wildlife using that and benefiting from it. I mean, didn't that feel pretty special in a small way? Yeah, it, uh, it, I don't know, man. It, like I said, it's, it's more feeling for me than, than words. It, I, I, I got so much enjoyment out of, it was almost like, check me out. I'm a man, right? <laughs> I planted stuff and it grew like beat my chest. There's, there was a little, a little bit of that. And at the same time there was this, Hey man, this is awesome. Yeah. I, I helped feed the, the animals through breaking of ground i don't know it, it was well it's it's another one of those ways that we connect back to the earth kind of you know that's right and i think every time we're reminded of that connection it like it it's so it's natural right i mean humans have been doing this forever it's only just recently that there have been all these kind of i don't know what you call them obstructions put in the way between like our relationship with the land and us now there's yep. grocery stores and you know all these other things that keep us from being connected to it so every time that we can reconnect that, you know, whether it be through, you know, planting a garden yourself or planting a food plot for wildlife or hunting, I think all these things that like tap into something that's like very human and um, it, it, it just feels right, you know. Or even something as simple as leaving your phone in your truck or your vehicle and going and sitting down next to a pond or lake yes. and just not being connected. Yeah. So true. So true. I think, I think people feel vulnerable and that's what scares them on, on some of this, you know, this is a little hippie talk, you know what I mean? But <laughs> this, this but is our hippie it, podcast episode, right? But this is definitely, it's definitely needed. It makes, I feel it makes people better. I agree. I agree. Speaking of better is, uh, is, is your daughter feeling better after screaming back there in the background? <laughs> <laughs> I told you every podcast. <laughs> There's going to be the random outbursts, and that there it was. <laughs> and there it was. I love it. But it was perfect because we need to we need to take a break now, and we got to get a hold of Donnie. But first, we're going to take a fast break to thank our partners at Sitka Gear. So if you heard our episode last week discussing the Archery Trade Show, you might remember us mentioning that Sitka is launching a new big game line and camo pattern this year called Subalpine. 
And today, to give you just a little more insight into what this whole subalpine thing is all about, I wanted to share with you guys a little snippet of the video they released to help with this announcement. We don't design all-purpose gear. Because all-purpose gear really translates to design to compromise. We design specialized gear that improves the experience. So it, it's a constant questioning. Are we doing everything we can to optimize for the pursuit? Our core big game hunters start chasing elk and mule deer in late summer, and it can be hot. At that point, weight and breathability mean everything. So for 2017, we developed the lightest system we've ever created. This is close quarters hunting. So we've optimized these systems with an all new pattern called Optifade Subalpine. It's designed for engagements of 50 yards or less on the ground in vegetative terrain. And so it comes back to experience. It's our desire to go further, get closer, stay longer. And it's through our focused approach that we're able to experience more. If you would be interested in learning more about Sitka's new subalpine line, you can visit sitkagear.com slash subalpine. And now we're going to get back to the show and give Donnie a call. All right, back with us for round three is Donnie Vincent. Thanks for joining us again, Donnie. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. At least it's not uh, two years in between like the last time. That's true. That's true. It's it's only been like a couple months or something like that. And and like we were talking about um, before we got you on here, you know, when we talked with you last time this fall, we talked all about, you know, your deer hunts in North Dakota, and we talked about some different things with kind of current events and everything. But at the very end, we had touched on, you know, really briefly the fact that you have this property in Wisconsin that you're working on and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And we just very briefly touched on it. So I thought today we could really focus there. Um, you know, talk about how you found this property, how you started thinking about it, what were the things, your goals, plans, what did you actually do, all that kind of stuff. Um, so sure. is that all sound pretty good, Donnie, if we go down that road? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, after our last podcast, um, I had quite a few people write me uh, just questions here and there about things that I'd done uh, management-wise, why this, why not this. So uh, there's definitely some interest, even though we just touch on that towards the end there yeah yeah so so i think when most of us think about you donnie we think about you know your films the, the rivers divide out there in north dakota or terra nova hunting caribou yeah i think that was in what, nova scotia mm -hmm. or something like that um and uh, yeah newfoundland newfoundland yep thank you and your bear hunts out mm -hmm. in canada or alaska all these different things i don't think many people think about you hunting a little ag property in wisconsin like all the rest of us um, can you, can you tell us a little bit just about like your history from a deer hunting perspective in that part of the country? Cause that's like where you've lived and hunted for quite a while when it comes to deer, right? Yeah, I've, I've hunted Wisconsin since, oh man, um, since the early two thousands, I had a friend of mine, like when I was in college, I had a friend of mine that owned 53 acres in Menominee, Wisconsin which is about, um, I don't know, call it two hours east of Minneapolis uh, in, you know, central Wisconsin, if you will, north central Wisconsin. And I leased that from him for years and years and years. And then a few years ago, he ended up selling that property, and it was fantastic because it was uh, 53 acres. 
it was a rolling wooded ridge with a little trout stream was my eastern border and you think ah 53 acres whatever what could that be but um lo and behold it had fantastic wildlife on it and i had a couple of really i never killed one uh, it was a difficult property to hunt but i had some bucks that lived there that were you know world class one and you know if you're talking inches of antler i'm talking 160s to 190s things like that that wow. of, of deer that i had um that were you know that lived in that valley and, and uh so when my friend sold that property um you know i just kind of would hunt with friends here and there, but I was very much interested in finding another property to lease or buy. Um, just because I love, obviously I love hunting near home. Not everything can be a huge expedition. And I've had some really very real adventures and very real, um, sensational hunts, you know, an hour from my house or minutes from my house. I've, I've seen some really fantastic things. So I never, I never turned my nose down to, to hunting around locally, and I always like to, you know, have something, a some, uh, place to go, a place that's my own, you know, where I can just go and Wednesday night when I get when I get out of the office, I can sneak into a tree like everyone else for a couple of hours. Do you have any one of those hunts or experiences, a close to home hunt or experience that stands out as like one of those that right off the top that you heard like that was one of those really special moments, even though it was just right there. Uh, yeah, um, I'll be, uh, to be honest with you, one of the ones that I think of often, there's there's two of them. One is the very first whitetail buck that I ever killed with a bow was on that 53 acres because I didn't start bow hunting until pretty late in life. Um, so I was in my 20s when I started bow hunting, and um, and I had I got up at super early in the morning, and, and this was back when I was just fanatical about quote-unquote scent control so i had all my clothes washed i had washed my street clothes because i had a long drive drove all the way from my house in minneapolis to my property and i got out in my driveway and i was getting dressed it was a chilly morning it was awesome it was in november i was just starting to snow a little bit and uh i realized that i had forgotten my release on my kitchen table in minneapolis <laughs> oh, shit. So i was just like oh my word i forgot my release so really quickly i tried to come to full draw with my compound bow and i was shooting a hoid at the time and i tried to come to full draw with just fingers and i was like can i do this and i and i did come to full draw and i was like i cannot do this this is this, this is <laughs> going to be messed up you know because i i was still learning so i was like no this can't happen so i was like calm down chill out because i was you know very very high energy about hunting perfectly as perfectly as I could. So I just got back in my truck, calmly drove all the way home, walked inside, literally my release was sitting right down on the kitchen table, grabbed it, walked right back outside, got in my truck, drove another two hours back to the property. And um, I got there about, I don't know, it was like 9.30, 9.45 in the morning, something like that. Got my stuff on. I was like, I'll just quietly walk in. And I walked in, big puffy snowflakes coming down. And um, I've always been afraid of heights. And so early on, I was very afraid of heights. I've gotten much more comfortable over years of hunting and being in the mountains and in the cliffs. I've just kind of come to the realization of dealing with it. But back then, I was terrified of being 20 feet in a tree. And so I hunted with a summit climber. You guys know those things, right? Climbing oh, yeah. up the tree that way. Yeah. Yep. yep. So I really liked hunting with a climber because it had that rail that was around my body. And I would just feel so much safer in that manner. So I had my climber, I hiked into my spot, set my climber up and I sat there, you know, tick it, tick it, tick it, tick it, tick it, tick it, all the way up, got into my spot. This is absolutely true story. 
and I was pulling my bow roll up, my bow rope up, yep, my bow up. I was pulling it up, and as, just as I got it to the base of my stand, I bumped my quiver off, and it fell all the way down to the bottom. And I just literally wow. sat there like, ooh, namaste, like, ooh, okay, just everybody chill out. We're, it's still There's a lot of hours left. It's a beautiful November day. Woosa. <laughs> Yeah. So I chicka 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 all the way down, grab my quiver, chicka 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 all the way up, and I had um, this is gonna be kind of gross, but I had drank uh, a couple of thermoses of tea while I was driving back forth. So I was like, man, I have to pee. <laughs> so I pulled my pee bottle out. I'm going pee. Actually, let me interrupt myself. I I decide I'm gonna do a rattling sequence. Then I'm going to pee. Then I'm going to sit down. <laughs> And so I rattle, wow. and as you can guess, in the midst of peeing, I look down, and here comes the buck of my dreams, comes walking in, circles the tree at 20 yards, and I shoot him perfectly. This is my first deer with a bow, first buck with a bow, and it was really funny. I shoot him perfectly. He runs just a short distance, tips over dead, um, and I text a couple of my friends and said, I just shot 150-inch 10 pointer. And when I got down and got to him, uh, he ended up being a 121 inch seven pointer. <laughs> well, and he looked absolutely monstrous to me. Hey, after, <laughs> after a hunt and a day like that, I'd say any buck is a giant. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, hang was, on a second. Hang on a second. You didn't, you didn't, like finish the story where you were, I mean, did you, my mind instantly goes to, did you shoot this buck with your Johnson hanging out? <laughs> I was, I was not, I, I was not put away. Okay. <laughs> that makes the story even better. <laughs> yep, oh, I was, uh, man. I, I, we did it. We did it in the moment. Yep. It was just free willy, if you will. Well, that is that is a very memorable story, Donnie. I, I wasn't yeah. expecting one that and good. I, and, and I've had lots of them, man. I've had lots of you know awesome turkey mornings. I love the turkey on. I've had awesome big whitetails, and and um, I've just been fortunate enough to. I, I am. People think this is a line, but whether I'm hunting stone sheep in British Columbia, or you and I link up on a Thursday evening. And, and we're going to go and shoot a doe or we're going to go hunt does on my hunting lease. Literally, those two things are the exact same thing to me. They weren't always, when I was younger, the bigger expeditions. I thought they meant more. But the more I went on them, the more every day on the expedition it was, you know, first day, second day, third day, the more I realized that these were just little sub days of the exact same thing that I was doing at home and that I shouldn't. Um, it, it wasn't even a, a cognitive thought. It just became that I, I was getting just as excited. I didn't have to mentally get there. I was getting just as excited to hunt at home as I was to hunt in far off places. And it just happened because I realized that no matter what, whether it be in my backyard or in the Arctic Circle, they're both fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. So, so, and that and that's not a line. That's literally, I literally wrap my head around that right now. I love it. It, it kind of falls right in line with something we were talking about earlier before you got on. Just the just talking about how there is, you know, this 
special kind of experience and value in having big wilderness places, but then there's also a special type of value and experience and enjoyment out of just the tiny little patches behind the house and how there's a different kind of um, special experience in both. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they, and they, and they can hold tremendous value, right? That's like right now, um, what we're about to talk about, I'm trying to manage or starting to change, not even manage. I, I, that's not even the word I want to use, but I'm trying to implement good into this small property because even a small strip of grass or a small tree cutting or planting a small section of pines or whatever it is that I'm doing, um, I'm just trying to make that little section better. And you'd be amazed the impact that you can have by managing just uh, by, by planting and, and um, implementing habitat in just a small little piece. It's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, so, so take us back to the beginning. How did you go about, you know, because it sounds like you've hunted Wisconsin at your buddy's place, lease, different things like that, but how yep. did you actually go to deciding to purchase, because you did purchase this farm right now, and... Um, no, 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 I, I only leased this farm. I leased okay. it. I, don't, I, haven't purchased, I haven't purchased it yet. Uh, the landowner and myself have talked about it. We've been talking about it. He really wants me to own it, but um, we just haven't went down that road as of yet. Okay. So then can you tell us how you found this property to lease? Because I know a lot of people are always trying to figure out how do you find a lease? How do you get a good lease? What, so how, how did this work out? How did you know this was the place that you wanted to hunt? How did you pick it? That kind of stuff. Yep. Um, it happened to be the uh, building maintenance man of where we have our offices for Sick Manta in Hudson. Uh, he's a local school teacher. He teaches uh, special needs kids, but in his uh, not free time, but in his, you know, this is like his second job. He's an awesome handyman carpenter. So he takes care of several buildings in town when he's not teaching uh, the special needs kids. And so, and he has, he has a lot of free time because he gets off early um, at school. And so just in, just in happenstance, I was speaking with him one day and he was telling me he had a 19 year old son um, at the time and he was telling me about him and his son have this property out of town that they love to go to and just walk around the woods. And, and he had just noticed around our offices, you know, the pictures of the wildlife and things like that. So he's like, oh, yeah, I have a, I have a chunk of woods east of town here that me and my kids love to go out on. And so I was asking him about it. He's like, yeah, it's, a, it's 153 acres. And then I started asking him, I said, does, does anyone hunt it? And he said, yeah, there's, there's a house on the property. And the guy that rents the house, he hunts it. And so I said, okay, cool. I said, well, if that ever changes, um, let me know. I'd be interested in potentially leasing that thing. I'd have to go out there and look at it, but I'd be, I'd be interested in leasing it for a long term. He's like, oh, let's talk about it right now because the guy that rents the house is like seven months behind in rent. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, that's fantastic. So um, I'll leave you to deal with that gentleman in the house, but I basically – went in and leased, uh, I didn't do it maliciously, but I basically went in and, and leased the hunting rights out from underneath this landowner. So, um, you know, our, our superhero just basically went to his, the rentee, the, the renter and just said, Hey, uh, you no longer have any hunting rights here. Uh, you, you know, obviously you're still in the house. We'll, we'll figure out rent that way. But the 153 acres as a whole, I've leased it to another guy. And, um, and so I basically just went out there and checked the property out. And what it was is um, it's mostly wooded. 
with secondary growth, deciduous hardwoods, lots of maple, lots of poplar, things like that. Um, and then the whole center of the property, basically right down the middle, like a, you know, like a landing strip is a 27 acre old agricultural field. Now, when, when our super bought it, he, that field was, um, sod. It had completely become overgrown and had little patches of cedar trees in and amongst it. But he was approached a few years ago, I think like four or five years ago by a local farmer. And he said, hey, I'd love to come in there and rent that 27 acres from you to do row crops, soybeans, and corn. And at the time, he, you know, he just wanted to make more rent on the property just to make the property make more sense. So he, he was very reluctant as his 19-year-old son um, really wanted to – he had a vision of you know, he wanted to go out there and, and build tent platforms for him and his dad and so they could go camping out there and camp amongst the uh, you know, black-eyed Susans and the – and the prairie flowers and stuff like that, and just enjoy their time out there. But, um, you know, so they, they ended up leasing it to this row crop farmer. He came in, started to start doing row crops. Um, then I came in and started leasing the hunting rights. And then, you know, I just saw this thing. It's just, you know, it was awesome having the farmer there and the crops and everything. But, you know, as soon as the farmer would harvest, you know, he'd just leave this, you know, you, you know what I'm saying, that he'd just leave this giant muddy, 27 acre you know crap fest behind when they were done harvesting their crop out and i was just like man i would love to do more here because i would just look at literally as simply as i'd look at the woods and say okay the woods are doing this look at this field which is basically essentially a kmart parking lot and then i look at the other side of the woods and say okay this woods over here is doing this and so then I just started thinking, like, what if I could change this from a parking lot into actually having some value? Um, and so I sat down and talked to talked to the super and just said, hey, um, would you anticipate, would you have an interest in leasing the entire thing to me? And as it were, um, sadly enough, um, his 19-year-old son ended up passing away right at about that same time uh, that I'd asked him if I could lease the entire property. And so... Um, we had a very heartfelt conversation about me coming in and returning much of that 27 acres back to how his oldest son kind of had a vision of going out there and camping with dad and just bringing that place back to uh, being very wildlife centric and turning it into a place that had prairie and, uh, and more wildlife and, and then, then it had evolved into with the row crops, if, if you will. Hmm. Wow. So when you first saw it, you know, when you first started leasing it, you know, what, mm-hmm. what did you see there that made you think it had potential? And I guess what were your, did, I know it sounds like your goals changed when you started seeing that, you know, you just kind of had this Kmart parking lot in the middle and you could do more. But in the beginning, did you ever look at it and say, wow, this could be like a long-term great thing or did it kind of grow on you? Uh, it kind of grew on me actually, because the first, I'm not a very, um, I'm not an over anxious type of hunter. I'm not somebody that gets completely fixated on, um, you know, on like I leased it for, I leased the property for two years before I even ever hunted it. I mean, not, I did not step foot on it for two years. I just want, I knew it was something that I wanted to put myself into, but I was so busy traveling and I didn't have a lot of time to put. So I just put a bunch of cameras up on the property 
in different locations and just, you know, trail photo trail cameras and just left them and then became increasingly interested in seeing like when I went back and looked at the photos, I didn't have any big bucks on, on the pictures or anything like that, but just watching the bucks interactions, I had caught several bucks fighting, uh, making scrapes, all of this stuff. And then ironically, uh, the property was owned by a, an elderly woman prior to my super buying it. And she was, I believe she was widowed and she was a deer hunter. So on my entire Eastern border of the farm field, she had planted apple trees all the way down that edge so that she could shoot deer underneath the apple trees with a rifle. <laughs> wow. And so I was starting to get pictures of these bucks under these apple trees and just getting tons of daylight movement. Like most of the photos I was getting of the bucks were in the middle of the day, broad daylight. And as you well know, as you start to hunt a property, that very quickly transitions to nighttime movement if you're not, you know, if you're not stealthy about it or if you're overhunting the property. So just seeing that the bucks were just moving throughout the property without harm. And then I, I'd done some turkey hunts there and I went out three or four mornings in a row, not a row, but went out there three or four mornings and let's say like a week and a half. I ended up calling in like 35 different toms um, wow. on the property. And so there were a lot of turkeys out there gobbling their heads off and doing all that stuff. So I thought, man, if there's all this going on when this is just a farm field, like what, what potential would this have if I actually started doing grasses and, and planted some food that I left year round and started planting food for both deer and birds and songbirds and, you know, right on down the line. And so that's when it started to just kind of, you know, started to roll in my head, started to kind of gain steam and that I wanted to do more and, and make the place pretty cool or try to anyway. Yeah. So how did that process then go when you started thinking about that you wanted to do more here? What, what was your vision? How did you start putting a plan together? Well, I, uh, oddly enough, um, I have a small infatuation with warm season grasses. Don't ask me why. I just think they're pretty cool. Like, uh, my house is completely surrounded by prairie. Yeah. And they're just like, and, um, uh, you guys know that Mark Drury is a good friend of mine, and and uh, you know I talk to Mark uh, often about uh, habitat and about whitetail management and whitetail hunting, and um, you know and he sends me his videos every year, and I watch his videos just like everyone else, and I you know I was looking at how he sets his properties up and just kind of seeing you know because even though I I have worked as a research biologist, I'm not very much of a whitetail biologist. I'm a deer hunter but I've never spent that much time studying the white-tailed deer. So while I had some ideas that I really liked, warm season grasses, I knew I wanted to have year-round food, things like this, I really didn't know what to implement. And so um, I actually reached out last year to Ben Harshine, who was a new friend of mine. I'd met Ben the year before uh, and really loved his maps that, you know, Ben owns Huntera and, makes these absolutely beautiful and ridiculously functional maps. Yes. And so we had spoken on the phone. I was like, Hey, would you make me a map of this property? And he's like, yeah, man, I'd be honored to, you know? And so we started a relationship there and the maps came and that solidified my ideas even more. Right. That got the wheel spinning even more. Cause now I had this bird's eye view and not just a bird's eye view, not just a topo map, but in the way that Ben does his maps, you know, I was able to see 
um, edge, you know, uh, you know, some people know that white-tailed deer and different animals do really well where there's an edge where it, you know, goes from conifers to a hardwoods or mm-hmm. conifers to a, a field or hardwoods to a field, whatever, wherever there's a distinction in habitat, the deer do really well. And so I started looking with Ben's map. I could see, because Ben, use, ben uses the sunlight, if you will, to kind of show you the shaded areas to show you topography. And I started seeing edge in the woods um, that I didn't realize was there. I, stands of conifers uh, butting up against deciduous trees that I didn't really see how they laid out until I got this map. So it started to get me excited. And then I called Ben because he does a lot more with quality deer management. He does a lot more with whitetail management stuff than I do. And um, it's just not a world that I live in. And I said, hey, do you know of any whitetail managers or wildlife managers that could give me a hand? And uh, very quickly, he introduced me to a gentleman named um, Eric Long, who owns Drumming Log Wildlife Management. I think that's the name of his company, Drumming Log, uh, you know, like grouse drumming. Mm-hmm. And uh, he introduced me to Eric, and I just wanted to um, – I knew I wanted to do cool things out here. I knew I wanted to change it up, but I didn't really know – what to do or how to do it or when to do it. And as lazy as this sounds, I just didn't have the time to do all the research on the plants and the timings and all this different stuff. And I'm certainly not a farmer. And so I reached out to Eric and just started the ball rolling. We had a conversation and it actually started out when I said, Hey, I don't want to creep you out. but I love warm season grasses. And he said, well, <laughs> I love warm season grasses too. So we're going to get along just fine. <laughs> And that's kind of how it started. Um, and, you know, and we slowly grew the project. Um, and luckily, they, they both become friends. And, you know, they have come here um, very often on their own dime, have come up, dr- driven up here or, or flew up here um, to come in onto the property and grab a chainsaw and grab, a, you know, a hand feeder and, and come and help me when just out of the love of getting their hands dirty. So, um, you know, that's kind of how it started. That's how it perpetuated. So we, last time we talked, you'd briefly mentioned that you, you guys did a bunch of hinge cutting, I think, or, or cutting at least in the woods and you had yep. planned the grasses and some food plots, but how much, how much work did this actually entail? I mean, was this, was this all over the course of like one or two weekends or was this over the course of the entire year? And what specifically did all you end up putting in place? Sure. Um, it, it ended up being, it was a considerable amount of work, but it didn't, um, you know, it didn't envelope a ton of time. It certainly enveloped much of, I mean, I talked to Eric and Ben often, not daily, but often um, in, you know, April, May, and June, certainly. And oh, actually March, April, May, and June, because we did the majority of our cutting. We had a warm March here last year. So Ben and I and, and Eric were able to get in and, and, um, and we wanted to cause some disruption, right? I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, you know, Eric did help us lay out and map out exactly where we wanted to cut with the chainsaws and everything that we've done so far, I've been incredibly happy with. I can't tell you that I'm wrapping up a 20 year study on this because, you know, I'm going into my second summer now where we've actually altered things, but we wanted, there was literally a sea of secondary growth trees, right? Uh, Literally of having, um, you know, having tree trunks that were 
two feet around down to four inches around and just an absolute sea of them. Like if I told you to run in a straight line as fast as you could, you couldn't because you'd kill yourself. You know what I mean? It's just literally a wall. So we wanted to create some sort of disruption and, and open up that canopy to get some secondary growth. And it was great because I went in there with Ben and we did a bunch of cutting and everything has kind of worked out exactly how we wanted it to. But it was also great because Eric came back after we did a bunch of cutting and he came in the woods with us and he's like, you guys did a great job, but you did it wrong. And we're like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, uh, this is fantastic to know because we were sitting there high-fiving and patting ourselves on the back all the way back to the truck for a sandwich. So this is awesome to know. <laughs> and, and, and basically Eric was like, you didn't do it wrong, but you didn't basically – we did a bunch of hinge cutting and we did a bunch of true cutting. I don't even know if that's really a term, but I'm going to make it up. We did a bunch of true cutting. But we didn't dismember these trees well enough and drop them down all the way to the forest floor so that we could get really good growth coming up. We basically just dropped our canopies down to the ground. They still ate up sunlight. They still consumed ground. So we went in there a second time and cleaned them up even more once we had Eric's direction where he came in. And, you know, it's kind of funny because you know, we're sitting there like the protege, like looking at him and looking at the spot and looking at him and going, what do you think? And he's like rubbing his chin going, and you know, you, you know, it's bad. And he's rubbing his chin and he goes, well, you, you know, you, I mean, you did a good job. And you're like, oh crap, here we go. Know where this is and going. he's like, but yeah, so we did the cutting and we knew like, and I think we're even going to do more cutting this spring. Um, and then we took the 27 acres and I'll be honest with you. I think Eric will admit this too. Ben will admit this. I'm still perplexed. I'm still sitting and scratching my head, but we took the 27 acres, this open pallet. We could do whatever we wanted. And we made an idea of where we wanted to plant grasses, where we wanted to plant food and kind of how the deer might move and how some of the other animals, uh, both game species like pheasants and grouse, turkeys, and also non-game species would kind of move and utilize the property. And so, um, you know, we made a best guess and we went in there and we ended up planting, I think, 11 or 12 acres of switchgrass. And then we planted some sorghum, um, some soybeans, and then we planted a few other areas with, you know, different, different um, cultures of, or different, uh, different clusters of, you know, brassicas and radishes and things like that. Things that would give, because we have a harsh winters here. So we wanted um, the deer and the turkeys. We wanted these animals to have, these larger animals to have. A late season food source and it's actually amazing the other animals that i'm seeing feeding on them now but you know we laid everything out we made our best you know not not i'm not going to say our best laid plan we made a plan because when you do this stuff you know you have to sling some crap against the wall right we don't anyone that's going to sit there and tell you okay this is exactly how i'd lay this out and this is exactly how it's going to go and this 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 is going to be perfection is lying to your face right you have to try and adjust try and adjust try and adjust and so we tried last year um and then we took our information and then now you know this spring um uh, we'll make some adjustments for sure but um it, but that's essentially what we implemented was 11 acres of warm season grasses strategically throughout the property most of them hugging the the um, edge of the forest um, and creating some travel corridors for the deer. And then, um, and then we, we planted a bean field that we left. We planted a sorghum field that we left. 
and then and then some of the green plots and stuff for the deer to utilize now now that it's freezing cold and there's snow yeah so when you decided to you know do all of this work on this property and in, in uh especially when you were talking about uh planting some of these uh grasses and some of this food you mentioned something about grouse and turkeys but was your main focus on whitetails or were you trying to better this property for an overall game habitat? hundred percent for an overall game habitat and, and non-game species. And I mean, I mean that sincerely, like when I started hunting the property, when Eric came and met with me um, and Ben was here and, and um, you know, I said, what are your goals? And, I said, I really want to create a habitat here. I mean, definitely was interested in the white-tailed deer and the wild turkey. I very much enjoy hunting both of them. I very much enjoy hunting healthy populations and healthy age class of both those animals. And so I wanted to create a habitat, a property that these animals felt safe at, that they weren't being overhunted at, and they could get some, actually get some refuge from my neighbors because this is Wisconsin, right? There's hunted very heavily rifle season, muzzleloader season, archery season. So I wanted it all encompassing, but I told Eric right away, like the first day, day, he said, well, what are your goals? And I said, well, this may sound silly and I'm sure you don't ever hear this from other clients, but I've been on this property now for a few years. I've, I've never seen a snake on this property. And I know that sounds silly, but with all the times of walking through these fields, all the times of walking through these woods and I have a few crick bottoms and like, I've never seen a turtle I've not seen a box turtle. I've seen a few frogs and I have never seen a snake. And, um, and he's like, okay, I totally get that. And so it, it, it's not that I was trying to create a property that's crawling with snakes, although I would <laughs> love that. I was trying to create a property that all of these animals, I wanted to elevate the entire property so that, you know, the songbirds are doing better. The, the grouse, like I would, um, Every spring when I was hunting turkeys, I'd hear a couple of grouse drumming. That's it. This year now, since planting some of this food and, and adjusting some of the cover and getting some of the grasses near the field edge, I mean, I've averaged of, you know, I've flushed like four to six grouse every time I've went out there, which is fantastic to see. Now, did I create more grouse? Absolutely not. All I did was pull grouse for my neighbors or pull grouse centrally to utilize the food and habitat that I planted, but in the long run, this is definitely going to, you know, this will bump up the grouse habitat, but it was a total ecosystem change that I wanted to do with an emphasis on the white tail deer, right? If I wasn't a deer hunter, I probably would have put in even more grasses and, and did even more bedding and tried to increase some natural browse and different things like that. If I didn't want to, if I didn't want to hunt the deer and I didn't want them to, to reside on the property. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So, so Dan planted his first food plot this year and I've been planning and doing different habitat management type projects for probably five or six or seven years now. And and we were just talking a little while ago about this kind of intangible feeling of accomplishment or, or something special about doing this kind of work and giving back to the wildlife and, and, and that little piece of ground there you're working on. Uh, Did you feel at all after doing these projects and now that you're kind of interacting with this landscape in a different way? 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. You know, and it's absolutely, I mean, it's, uh, you know, get, get tremendous value in watching, you know, 
sitting in a tree stand or in the ground blind or even just um, being out there and glassing and seeing, you know, a, a big fat doe come out of the woods with two fawns and they're out there filtering their tail and they're running around like madmen and they're eating and, you know, you're watching these plants that you planted, that you purchased, right? This is expensive, you know, and, and a lot of work went into this. So consulting Ben, consulting Eric, we, we, we got all of our seed from a company. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever worked with, uh, have you ever heard of Merit Seed in Ohio? I've not. Okay, so Merit Seed, M-E-R-I-T, just put it in the back of your brains. There's a guy there named John. He's a wildlife genius. And I would call John, like when I couldn't get a hold of Eric, or Eric would call John. They're friends. They work together all the time. But I would call him and talk to him about all these different plants and seedings, and, and he's uh, just a wildlife freak. He just loves growing wildlife. So, you know, consulting all these different gentlemen, buying the seed, buying all these different things that go into the property, and then actually seeing it, right, actually seeing the animals utilizing it, actually seeing them, hoping they're going to have not such a harsh winter, and hopefully they're going to grow big and strong and fulfill their lives. Uh, only a couple of them are going to potentially get killed by my bow or a friend's arrow, and uh, the value the value of seeing it and the value, value of experiencing it is tremendous. Tremendous. I just went out there the other day, I don't know, two weeks ago maybe. I've never seen a pheasant on the property ever. Never, ever have I seen a pheasant. And just naturally walking through, there's, I have an old growth field that I just left as is. It's all goldenrod and, and grasses and, and uh, some shrubbery, uh, some red oaks or dogwood, things like that. And I walked through there. Um, I, flushed, uh, I flushed six hens and three roosters. I've never seen a, a pheasant on the property. It's oh. just just cool seeing it you know it's just fantastic seeing i i saw several snakes this summer i saw a box turtle like you know it's just it's just cool to see these things and again i don't have this delusion that we have changed the world in a single year but i know we've made some enhancements that have uh, made these animals move in um and it's just really cool it's it's really cool to see and 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 feel and and i know i remember i made a comment to you at our last podcast where i said and i don't have any bucks anymore do you remember that yeah yep yeah and so it's funny because i had a couple of people write me and say oh my god like you got rid of your bucks and oh my god like this arid guy got rid of your bucks and i just thought oh, oh my god no i can't believe that people think that we have the ability to you know, grow whitetail deer or to produce whitetail deer in a fashion of if you, you know, if you're hiring a whitetail manager to come onto your property, I'm sure you guys know this. I hope you know this, but if you're hiring a whitetail property to come onto your land and, and alter your land and suddenly there's going to be 160, 170, 180 inch deer running all around and you have to work less to um, shoot big giant bucks, old bucks. And, and this is why you're doing it. Then, I think you're doing it for a tremendously wrong reason. Yeah. And, and I think that you're going to probably be greatly disappointed in that wildlife manager's ability to turn your property into Shangri-La. He, what, what you're paying for, this is in my mind's eye, what you're paying for is, well, this is how I think about it. You're paying for that wildlife manager's failures and sample set, his data set that's in his head. Like Eric has, set up 
a billion more properties than I have. He's failed at setting up a billion more properties than I have because anything that any of us do, you know, if he wanted to make a, a film, if, if he attempted to make a, a hunting film, I'm sure that thing, I'm positive his first hunting film would be not good. And if he would have come to me, I could say, hey, I, look, at if you did these three things here, I made these same mistakes. You know, it's just like we do anything in life. But um, I had some people write me like, oh, my God, he got rid of your box. and just made me laugh. I was like, no, he didn't get rid of my box. My box probably got shot, not my box. Can you even – I can't believe I'm even saying this. The right. box <laughs> on a probably, probably – probably got – I mean, this isn't Disney. Probably got shot by my neighbors or – moved over to another neighbor who planted a field and didn't harvest it because it was too wet or whatever. Like these animals are free to move throughout their range. And I, I, I actually found it quite comical that um, I had several bucks the year before. And then I went in and then we did all this work. And then this year I'm sitting there going, ah, it's not funny. We spent all this money, did all this work, all this blood, sweat and tears. And, and I'm seeing less deer, less mature antler deer than I was the year before. Fast forward to right now. So we we did that podcast in like November. Does that sound right, or was that December? I think it was November? late. I think it was late November. Okay, so I think it was beginning. Yeah, I think you're right because in the beginning of December, um, it actually made me chuckle because I went out there. Um, I hadn't been on the property in a long time. I checked my cameras, and boom, I had like five or six big deer that I'd never seen before. And now they're residing on my place. How they got there, I don't know. But I created the type of habitat that makes it very welcoming in the late season. Will they stay next year? Who knows? I don't care. But I just want to do better things for my property, do better things for my neighborhood. Do I care if my neighbor shoots a big buck that lives on my property? Absolutely not. I just want everything in the area to get better. Yeah. And so... It, it's very rewarding. It's tremendously rewarding. But if you're chasing big deer, um, you might end up being disappointed at the end of the road, at the end of the journey. Yeah, and, and it's a process. It's a process. And, and, and to your point, if all you're concerned about is the eventual outcome or whatever your outcome in your head is, you're going to be very disappointed if you aren't also enjoying the process and the fact that it takes time and it takes work and that stuff has value in and of itself. So. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it will never live up to your expectations, right? It'll never, ever, even if you kill a 180, then what next year? You want a 190? Like, that's, that's not how to go about this thing. I think if you chase habitat more than deer, you're going to come out winning on all sides. Yeah. So so on this, on this kind of topic, we talked, well, whenever it was, late November, early December when we last talked, you talked about the fact that you had read Elder Leopold's book, A Sand County Almanac, a number of times. I think you maybe even said that you, you try to read it once a year or something like that. And um, I picked it up again yeah. recently and was looking at it again recently. And a lot of this stuff we're talking about now, you know, giving back to a property or conservation, whether it be in a small personal scale or like a big public land scale, it's got me thinking a lot about the land ethic that Leopold talked about in his book. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain about that land ethic. We've never talked about it on the podcast before for people, but I think people hear the name Aldo Leopold a lot. They hear us kind of float that name mm-hmm. out there, but maybe people don't really know what he was suggesting, what he was recommending, and how that maybe has, has kind of changed the path of the conservation movement to a degree here in the last 50 years or so. So if you guys will indulge me for a quick second here. For those that haven't read the book, I just wanted to read a passage here real quick, and then I wanted to get your your thoughts on it, Donnie. So, 
uh, excuse my poor reading skills if I fumble here, but, but real quick, from a Sand County Almanac, I want to quote this right here. Eldo said that all ethics so far evolved rest upon a single premise, that the individual is a member of a community of interdependent parts. His instincts prompt him to compete for his place in that community, but his ethics prompt him also to cooperate, perhaps in order that there may be a place to compete for. The land ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soils, waters, plants, and animals, or collectively, the land. This sounds simple. Do we not already sing our love for and the obligation to the land of the free and the home of the brave? Yes. But just what and whom do we love? Certainly not the soil, which we're sending helter-skelter downriver. Certainly not the waters, which we assume have no fun function except to turn turbines, float barges, and carry off sewage. Certainly not the plants, of which we exterminate whole communities without batting an eye. Certainly not of the animals, of which we have already extirpated many of the largest and most beautiful species. A land ethic, of course, cannot prevent the alteration, management, and use of these resources. But it does affirm the right to continued existence, and at least in spots, their continued existence in a natural state. In short, a land ethic changes the role of Homo sapiens from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. It implies respect for his fellow members and also respect for the community as such. So, Donnie, there is a brief snapshot of what Aldo Leopold was talking about when he said that we need to have this, this land ethic. What, what does that mean to you? How do you interpret those words from Aldo, and how has that kind of been played out through your life maybe? Well, it's, um, you know, it's in, in a word, it's harmony, right? Um, in a word, he describes that we're not here, and you can, you can hear it in his writing. Um, you know, we're not here um, to use everything. Having a renewable resource doesn't mean that you use it beyond belief for selfish reasons to make your life better, your life easier, and to propel the mechanized world and and make your you know your day uh you know uh, less busy less full of hard work um it's it's much more about you existing within the land and contributing as much as you're taking and and being um being one with the land right it's it's um he's absolutely absolutely you can um catch and keep a fish in and enjoy a fish for dinner. You can shoot a duck and shoot a deer and, um, um, and you can cut trees down, but certainly all of it, whether you're killing a deer or planting a tree or cutting a tree down, um, all of it has to be done with great wherewithal on what your contribution is and what you're taking away from the resource and how you're belonging in the resource, not dominating the resource, belonging in the resource. And so, um, in my life, it has been, you know, I had to learn these things. Obviously I didn't have this in, I'm not genius enough or at all to have this in my mind as a young man. So as I learned these principles, things that were stirring in the back of my mind started to make sense. Uh, you know, when I was coming, when I had encounters with grizzly bears or I had encounters with different animals or in different situations in my life. I really appreciated them and, and wasn't, I just wasn't always this, um, for lack of a better term, bloodthirsty hunter. It wasn't, I just didn't want to just, um, kill as much as I could and take away from the land as much as I could. When I was in these places, 
I wanted to envelope myself into the place as much as I could exist with the wildlife, with the fishes, with the plants as much as I could and participate and be present. And I didn't, again, I didn't know any of this stuff. And then when I started reading his writings and some other writings and some other um, conservationists and hunters that I started to realize that that that's where I was getting, I had some similar concepts in my head that, that they were lining out. And of course he's a beautiful, brilliant writer and he had tremendous respect for these smallest pieces of land. And one of the things he also had that I have no idea how he accomplished this, but he had a fantastic idea of the history of the land. And maybe it was easier back then. Maybe there were such significant events that went on and there was such a small human population that you could really put your finger down on timelines and really lay it out. But he literally has such a mental timeline, such a date book in his head of when things happened and how big changes happened and why they happened. And like he's talking about the extirpation of these major animals. Well, that's all of that is from overuse from human beings. Everything that he listed off, everything, the commonality, the one commonality is the human being. And um, we're the ones that create overuse. We're the ones that are burning down entire pastures for, you know, what he quotes is no particular reason. Um, someone else, you know, the rancher, if you will, I'm just picking this out, but the rancher might think he has a tremendous reason. I have to create more browse for my cows. Um, and this is how this all works. But for him, he's saying there's, there's a way to do this in harmony. And uh, can you do it with 8 billion people on the globe? Absolutely not. So we've had to make, we've had to make up, you know, adjustments all along the way. And that's where you start to have these extirpations of animals, right? When you, when you realize that, you know, Minnesota used to have woodland caribou in it. Why doesn't it have woodland caribou in it anymore? Because uh, the white-tailed deer pushed them out because the white-tailed deer started to become more successful because of different edges that were being created. You know, people talk about back in the day, but there were so few white-tailed deer that if you saw one, you told everyone in town about it. And now we have them everywhere. And people think, oh, my God, we're doing such amazing things with management. We now have deer everywhere, but people don't realize that this animal has become incredibly abundant because of the changes that we've done to the landscape, the forests we've cut down, the fields that we've burned, the fires that we've stopped when they needed to burn, and thus these animals become overpopulated. And you can cheer about this and, and think you're the champion of, of bringing these animals to a greater population, but it really wasn't meant to be, right? These animals thrived in a smaller population in a big forest. And I'm just using this as a single example as people, you know, are, are fixated on deer or fixated on this type of movement. But you see what I'm saying. There is a, there is a harmony and with each thing that we do. We are creating way more disruption than we are harmony. And I think that's where he really lived with his ideas. That's why his writing is so beautiful and so eloquent because you can see in his heart and in his words that he wanted that harmony. And when you read about it and see it, whether he's cutting down a dead tree or cutting up a dead tree or catching a trout and putting in his creel, everything was done with tremendous wherewithal. And it's, it's um, a really fantastic notion to belong to. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. So, so Eldo wrote this back in the forties, I think late forties or early fifties. And so he, he had these ideas and he was 
you know, talking about this given the context of that time period and the impacts that had already been seen at that time period. But now fast forward, you know, 65 years or whatever it has been now, when you're looking at the world we live in today and the, the situation we have with wildlife and land, do you, how do you feel about this concept of the land ethic that Aldo, you know, recommended or, or hope described us to? Have we, have we, do you think we put that into play or do you see that we have not been able to find a land ethic from your perspective? No, there's there's no land ethic anymore. Um, that that ship has sailed. That's why um, I think I think so. I'm not. I, I'm truly not smart enough to understand the variables um, around it and all the different um, society and and human interests that come into play. But um, there are definitely certainly individuals, certainly organizations, and certainly areas of the world that are chasing this harmony and try to live in such harmony. Uh, but, you know, by and large, we have thrown that any sort of land ethic out the window. And that's why, you know, myself, um, that's why I, I chase off to these places, right? That's why I love going to the Arctic Circle, because while it's not the same Arctic Circle that was there in 1940, I still get to look around and watch caribou migrate, watch wolves hunt. And, and watch grizzly bears eat blueberries and dig for ground squirrels. And, I, and that's why I celebrate the same fact of going and slipping into a tree stand or in a ground blind or even off to the, the lease because um, I might bump into a garter snake and I might flush a pheasant or see a deer or see the black-eyed Susans in full bloom. And just for that split second, which is very important to me, just for that split second, I kind of am experiencing an alleged harmony right? I'm convincing myself that I'm in the woods, I'm outside. Um, our lives are finite. The clock is ticking. Uh, I might die in my truck tonight on my way. Home. I might, I might get killed in a car. I said, when we get off the phone with it. So I'm going to try to live life. your to live your life. Like you're dying. It's, it's a foolish concept. It's a fantastic idea, but none of us can actually do it. Uh, but Anytime you can steal away one of those seconds or a moment or be present in the, the outdoors, I really think that you've conquered that, that realm of, of wanting to live in the moment. And for me, all those little things are my little personal land ethic, right? If I sit in my office and think about 8 billion people, if I think about the Internet, Facebook, social media, Instagram, the elections, I'll go freaking nuts. So I try not to pay attention to any of it. Um, and I, and I try to just go about, I try to just go about my life. If I could spend time in the wild places that I want to be and be with my friends and be with my family, because it's very important to me, but I can share my life with the wildlife and as crazy as it sounds and as business like as this sounds, if I could do that stuff and create films that, that people really enjoy to see. If, if you can't get to the Arctic Circle, but I can show you some sights from the Arctic Circle, it really gives you goosebumps or makes you well up inside with your mind or sit in a theater and and maybe kind of forget that your mouth is wide open or that you're even supposed to be breathing right now. Like that's the stuff that I really love is trying to trying to celebrate this stuff through film. And, you know, sometimes we're successful. Sometimes we fail so miserably. It's not even funny. Um, but that's, that's those are the little times that I try to steal away myself, right? I don't, I don't, um, 
I just that that's hunting for me. That's hunting everything for me. And and um, there's a lot of hunting that's going on right now that's not for me. And I don't even care to talk about it. But that harmony that Aldo wrote about, um, that's what I want to chase the rest of my life. Yeah. So so for those people that that, that resonates with. For other people out there right now that this whole idea resonates with, but to your point, if you sit and you look on the web, you know, if you look on the web or if you watch the news or anything, I think, you know, continue with Eldo quotes, he had some kind of, he mentioned something on the lines of like, the curse of having an education in ecology is the fact that you will forever live in a world with a million wounds or with your eyes open to a world with a million wounds, you know, saying that when you start paying attention to the things going on to the land, to wildlife, to the environment, you all of a sudden open your eyes up to just so many things that are going wrong. And it can be like disheartening. It can be depressing. I'll sit here and and then the more I've started paying attention to this, the more it's like, Oh my gosh, it almost seems like insurmountable. Like how can we stop some of this stuff? How can we, make a positive difference? You know, how can we create a world where there is some type of land ethic? I mean, when you sit and think about that stuff, what, what is the answer? I mean, for someone listening, what is the answer for that person? How can we all build a little bit of this land ethic in our own world? You have to contribute, right? You have to do the best you, um, like, um, for instance, I'll talk about something. Uh, so, so for instance, uh, you have a quarter of an acre next to your house. It's just Kentucky bluegrass. It's grass that you, every Saturday morning, you get up and mow that thing and, and you know, you sit on the riding lawnmower, you push the riding lawnmower, half hoping that a sniper's bullet catches you in the forehead before you finish. <laughs> but what if you took that little strip of land and planted, you know, grasses? What if you just said, you know what, this summer I'm going to have a project, I'm going to till this up, I'm going to kill this Kentucky bluegrass. I'm going to plant grasses or I'm going to plant a little stand of, of pine trees or whatever it is. Um, and you create a little strip of habitat next to your house. You know, is that going to do anything ecologically towards harmony? No, but it's going to do a little tiny bit to the animals that are in your neighborhood. It's going to do a little tiny bit to the animals that live around your house, to your intrinsic value of your own home you'll see butterflies and you know you know you go out there with your son or your daughter and you're going to see different songbirds utilizing the grasses than you were seeing before and and even catching one of those glimpses of of them or experiencing just having some dichotomy in your life rather than just mowing that lawn is uh you know that's that's taking a step in the right direction and i think you know we just have to go if you take a look around and you see all the ecological wounds of living with your eyes wide open like Aldo says, you know, you can chase yourself into disgust and despair, but really um, you just have to try to be a better you, make better decisions, and and do everything that you can to try to perpetuate good. And you should hunt the same way. Um, you know, if you're hunting for um, a 400-inch bull elk and you could care less how you do it, or you could care less the things that you see along the way. You just want to get this animal down so you can snap some photos of it to throw it up on Instagram so all your friends can say what a badass you are. Um, that's just gross. It's just not It's just not the same hunting that, that I think about. And we've all fallen victim to it. We've all chased big animals. We've all 
um, lost their way at times. That's for certain. But I think you just have to do little things. You have to chase the good. You have to be better than you are right now and just constantly try to make, you know, make changes. I'm going to do that to this, you know, do that to this hunting lease that I'm working on. I'm just going to try to make it better. Is, is me changing that 27 acre field going to do anything to the ecology of that neighborhood? Probably not. Um, it might do some really good little things. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's going to have a greater impact than I think it is. Um, but I don't know, but I'm going to try to just keep, keep focusing on the good and keep trying to do good things. We, we just, you know, so many people on the globe right now that it's just really hard to find some alone time and, and, uh, some wilderness space and people, you know, it's, it's, um, it's one of the things that drives me most nuts about, um, anti-hunters or non-hunters that try to celebrate untouched ecology. They're just absolute fools about it. And it drives me bananas that you think if we stop killing wolves or if we never hunt grizzly bears, or if we, um, I can't even think of some of the idiotic things that some of these people come up with, but if we, if we chase some of these things, um, and you think that things are going to perpetuate into Shangri-La are going to perpetuate into the, the happy place that, that Walt Disney creates in his sketches and in his art, um, you're absolutely nuts. And it goes, the same goes for hunters, guys that, you know, I see guys with stickers on their truck that say smoke a pack a day, you know, shoot all the wolves you can. It's just as foolish. If you think that you are going to do, if you think you're going to come in and change ecology, and change a particular um, area or spot by killing all the wolves or killing all of the coyotes, you're, you're a fool. You're an absolute fool. Are there places that wolves need to be killed? Absolutely. Are there places where coyotes need to be killed? Absolutely. There's also places where deer have to be killed and where, you know, species of trout need to be killed out of a stream or microbes that are killing the trout or plants. There's lots of imbalance, but celebrating any of those, with absolute certainty um, just points out to me that you're clear cut a fool. Absolutely. If you think you things can be reduced to a single variable and that you're going to have an impact with your rifle, uh, foolish. Well, it all comes back down to that concept of harmony, right? We, that's right. That's right. We have indelibly left our mark. You know, human beings on this earth, we've left a mark that can't be taken off, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you choose to look at it. And because of well, that... Well, there is a chance, right? There's a chance once we all die off and we <laughs> hit the restart button. We, you, you and I won't be here to see it, but it, it will happen. Right. Uh, <laughs> true. In the, in the more near-term future, though, at least, like the, there's no way to wholly remove our influence on ecosystems and everything like that. So all we can try to do is, as best as possible, find some means of harmony and balance but but that's the challenge and to your point i think anytime you try to skew that balance in the favor of one person or group's interest you know when you say well we don't care about x animal because we just want a lot of y i mean you know to the to the example you shared predators i think that this is a dangerous thing sometimes that we as hunters get into when we worry about our competition. Understandably, there needs to be balance. But at the same time, the idea of eliminating predators completely just because we want tons and tons and tons and tons of deer, well, you lose that harmony there too. And then you, what, 
what you're left with is not a wholly harmonious ecosystem and it is not natural and you lose something there too. And I think um, we've got to be careful to, to, to know that, yes, we need we have to have a, a piece, a part in this whole system, but at the same time there has to be balance too. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly live, you know, live your life, find your harmony, find, find your interactions. You know, a few years ago I was in the Arctic Circle and I happened to uh, be fortunate enough to um, get surrounded by a pack of wolves. And um, could I have shot one? Absolutely. Had a wolf tag in my pocket. They were 10 yards away from me, had my bow. Um, I chose not to shoot one. Uh, I, I just did not want to shoot a wolf, did not want to shoot a wolf in that instance. I didn't want to shoot a wolf on that trip right then. I was hunting moose. Fast forward a year, uh, another gentleman that I know that was hunting the same region, he went in there with his hunting partner, and they shot two of those same wolves out of that pack um, that had surrounded me neither one of us was right or wrong. I, I did not choose to shoot a wolf. It was not um, what I wanted to do. Um, he chose to shoot two wolves. That area has um, a healthy population of wolves. That pack is a healthy population of wolves. And he shot two adults out of the pack. Um, is the pack going to feel it? Absolutely. Is the pack going to recover? Absolutely. You know, both of us lived our lives. Both of us lived in the harmony that we wanted to be in, in that area. Um, and both of us had a different experience, but neither neither one of them was right or wrong. Yeah, yeah, very true. <clears throat> so I kind of want to wrap this up, Donnie. We, I could talk about this stuff for, for a very, very long time, and there's a lot we haven't touched on that I would like to talk to you about, but but we do need to wrap it up. Um, I want I want to kind of get your final thoughts, though, on the the message that you want to leave with people. I mean, when Donnie Vincent is dead and gone someday, and you've done your work, what message do you want to have left hunters or people, anyone who's seen your work or been influenced by you? What is that thing or concept or idea or message that you hope will be left to those people? You know, it's a very, very similar to Aldo's message in that um, as, as I went through my life filming and, writing and just experiencing and being in wild places either by myself or with people that um, I've really chased that harmony and it's more and more every day. And I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and wiser and more aware. um, But that's, that's exactly what I want people to, um, to hang their hats on is that um, the way I hunted off camera or on camera is the same for me. And that I, I, my interactions with wildlife and, and habitat and just being present with in wild places is just, um, I try to go forth every time with harmony. Obviously, uh, it's not always perfect, um, but, but it's, it's, it's where I really enjoy. It's where I really enjoy living and it's, it's how I really enjoy interacting. And, and, um, and, you know, that's basically it. I mean, that's, that book means so much to me. His writing means so much to me. It's, uh, I can't articulate as well as he can, uh, not not nearly in his writing, but um, so much of his words ring true to, to how I live my life and want to continue to live my life from here on out. Yeah. I, uh, I can say the same things too. There's really a lot there to be, um, to be digested. And uh, from what I from what I've seen from your work, Donnie, I think you're well on your way to to communicating that message as well. So, uh, 
I appreciate that. I appreciate Thank what you. you're doing, and uh, and hopefully we'll we'll see plenty more of it in the future. Thanks, man. I really appreciate the time to talk. It's uh, I really enjoy speaking with you, gentlemen. Yeah, and and I got to say, Dan actually had to drop off the phone call. As our listeners know, sometimes he has uh, baby issues, and he had one of those right now. <laughs> so so Dan is attending to the family, but uh, but from both of us, Donnie, understandable. Yeah, from both of us, though. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode is in the books, and as we said before, if you haven't gotten to check out Elder Leopold's Sand County Almanac. Pick up a copy and give it a shot. You know, it's it's admittedly a little bit dense at times. It's not one of those quick, easy, fun reads necessarily. But if you read it in little bits and take it over time and kind of chew on it, I do think you'll find something very valuable there. So moving on, I want to thank any and all of you who have left reviews of this podcast on iTunes. That's been such a big help over the years, and I appreciate that feedback so much. I just want to take an extra second to, to call all of you out and thank you. And I also want to thank our partners who have helped keep this podcast on the air Big thanks to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you for being with us today. I hope you were able to stick with us on this one as we kind of weaved our way through these topics of conservation and giving back and having a land ethic. I know, you know, that's not always as exciting or entertaining as talking about new strategies and hunting stories and all that good stuff, but, but ultimately... I do think it's just as important, if not more so. So I thank you for being a part of this ongoing conversation that we've been having over these past few years. And finally, until next time, thank you all and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.